Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. We have been spending a tremendous amount of time in recent weeks speaking about current events in Israel. Normally, we don't do that. We talk about poetry and literature and history and art and a whole array of things, including some politics, some defense, some security, Speaking with people from all different sides, Jews and Arabs and men and women and young and old and religious and secular. Uh, but as our regular listeners know, in recent weeks we have devoted an inordinate percentage of our time to trying to first of all understand the judicial reform or judicial revolution, depending on who you ask. And today we are still going to speak about contemporary Israel, but we are not going to talk at all about judicial reform. Because we've said, both in my conversations with uh, Yaniv Roznai and with Micha Gutman, that in addition to all of what's going on in Israel legally, there's also something happening to Israeli society. There's something happening in the relationship between different groups of Israelis that is painful, that to me uh, seems ugly. Uh, and I'm sitting with one of the most important people in the Jewish state who has been at the helm of founding an organization called Sohar, which he will tell us about in a minute, uh, Rabbi David Stav, who I will say more about in a minute. But I'm just going to share um, the opening conversation that he and I had before we even got started. He asked me, so how are you doing these days in Israel? And I said, I remembered that when my father passed away about seven-something years ago, the best moment of the day was the moment between waking up and then remembering, because the rest of the day was sad. And But there was at least these seconds, five seconds, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, I said, at the beginning of the day when I didn't yet remember, and the world seemed brighter. These days, I said to him, and this is a completely true statement, I don't even get those seconds, because I literally dream about what's happening in Israel in the middle of the night, and I find myself waking up in the middle of the night, thinking about it, and having trouble falling back asleep. Something, for those of us who love this country, is happening here that is sad, uh, that is worrisome, and there's really no one better to talk about the religious dimension or the uh, shared society dimension of this than Rabbi David Stav, Rabbi David Stav. Rabbi David Stav is the founder and chairman of the Tsohar Rabbinical Organization. It's a rabbinical organization which aims to provide religious services to and create dialogue with the broader Israeli population. He also serves as the rabbi of the city of Shoham, for those of you that don't know Israeli geography so well, it's not too, too far from the airport. Uh, not right at the airport, but not too far. Previously, he served as the rabbi of the religious film school, Ma'aleh, and was one of the founding heads of Yeshivat Hezder Petach Tikva. He's the author of Ben Hazmanim, a book about culture and recreation in Jewish thought and law. 
He is one of Israel's most visible rabbinic figures, I would say most venerable and highly regarded uh, rabbinic figures, always on Israeli television and radio, lectures to a wide array of audiences, and we have much more information about him in print uh, on, the, on the dispatch that you got the link to this podcast from. So, um, Rabbi Stop, first of all, it is a great, great honor to be sitting with you. It is truly a great, I'm very flattered that you took the time to chat with us. Um, I, I consider myself really a Talmud of your Torah, read you regularly, listen to you regularly. Let's talk about Israeli society. Um, when I said to you what I said about waking up in the middle of the night, then you said something, well, okay, so we're in the same place. So I, I, I want to hear from you um, your assessment of what's happening here, what troubles you, what really is, is, is the deep problem in Israeli society. And then, of course, before we're done, we have to talk about how do we fix it. Shalom to everyone. Shalom to you, Daniel. And I think uh, I really share the same concern, just like you. Before I will try to explain what really concerns me today in these days, I want to emphasize, it didn't begin in the last two or three months. We are talking about deep process that is taking place already in the Israeli society for years. But I would say that the last two or three months gave a kind of a booster, gave a push to a process that is, we are facing this process for years, and this is very, very much concerning. Before I will begin, I will, I will try to divide for our people that are listening to us, to divide the Israeli society to four or five tribes so that we'll understand what we are talking about. Israel, I'm talking now about the Jewish component of the Israeli society because there is a fifth tribe, that's the Arabic society, which is a very important uh, tribe in the Israeli society, which has about 18 or 20 percent of the citizens in Israel. But let's focus for this conversation um, about the, to talk about the, Israel, the Jewish society. The Jewish society is basically divided to four major groups. One group is the group of the secular. I would use a word that is not politically correct with your Permission, Granted. secular Ashkenazi society. Right. Ashkenazi is not in politically incorrect, but the secularism secular is an Ashkenazi phenomenon. Yes. Correct. Secular Ashkenazi, which used to be the biggest tribe, the leading tribe, and actually used to be the majority. It was the founding tribe. And there is, that was the founding tribe of the state of Israel. No question about that. This tribe today is about... 35% of the Jewish society in Israel. The second biggest tribe is the traditional, usually Sephardic uh, tribe, that has around the 30% of the Jewish society. And the rest of the society, if we sum up 40 to 30, we have 30% left, which is divided between modern Orthodox, religious Zionism, and Haredi parties, Haredi people, that have altogether around the 30% of, um, of the society. How does it divide up inside that 30% between Dati Lumi, what we call modern Orthodox? Basically, 50%, 50%, although we assume that in the next generation, in 10 or 20 years, there will be an increase in the Haredi society, 
on the account of the Datilumi of the modern Orthodox society. But meanwhile, it's around 50-50. I mean, about 15% are Haredim and 50% are a modern Orthodox and religious Zionist. Now, I want to add one more uh, component to this conversation. Usually speaking, again, it's, we are generalizing, it's not uh, 100% accurate, but usually I would say that out of the 40% that is the secular tribe of the Israeli society, I dare to say that I would not exaggerate if I would say that between 80 to 90% of them voted for the parties that are connected to the opposition. And in the other three parts that have about 60% of the Israeli society, 80, between 80 to 90% of them voted to the parties that the coalition is consisted of. Again, it's just generalizing just to make the picture uh, clear to our listeners. And I would add one more thing. 90% of the taxes to the Israeli government are paid by the 40% that voted to the opposition. If it's 90 or 85 or 92, it's not important. But these are the people that basically are carrying on the shoulders the Israeli economy. And many of them carry on the shoulders the Israeli IDF. Although the, uh, the modern Orthodox Tatilumi is very well correct. represented. Correct, correct. Again, the Arabs that basically belong to this camp do not go to the army. The other side, the Haredi, that are about 15%, also do not go to the army. So it's balanced more or less, but yet um, these are the ones that uh, secret services are consisted of them. And the head of the Mossad, of the Shabak, the pilots, most of them are coming from this arena, social arena. Again, it's just to make the story simple, just to explain to our listeners what is the challenge. If you ask between these four tribes, what is their identity? There are two identities that are now in struggle. It's Again, it did not begin with the judicial reform or changes. It did not begin with that. It began years earlier. But there is a battle between two identities in the Israeli society. You can call it democratic versus Jewish. You can call it Israeli versus Jewish. It's not the same, but they are very similar because I don't have to explain. For religious people and even for traditional people, their Jewish component of their identity is very strong versus the democratic values that are important, but not as important. And for the secular Israelis, their democratic identity or their Israeli identity the component of these areas in their identity plays much bigger role than their Jewish identity. When you, when they usually combine, connect between Jewishness and religious. And therefore, since most of them are not religious, so for them the component, the Jewish component in their identity is usually very small, very little. I'll just add, it's not our subject today, but it, it does relate to your work in Tzohar, that they associate Jewish with religious, and they associate it with a version of religion that is not inviting, that is very judgmental, 
that is not embracing. So it makes it even more complicated. Correct. But to be honest to the history, we have to admit that, again, this process began before the religious Haredi establishment. I mean, the Zionist movement was based on a kind of a rebel of the sabre, of the strong Zionist secular identity versus the image of the Jewish yeshiva boy from the exile. The, if you're in this program, you are talking about the poetry. We know Bialik, the very famous poet that wrote about the yeshiva boy in Volozhin or in other places. And he describes the yeshiva as a place of darkness. Very famous poet. Hamatmid. Hamatmid. Very famous poem, poem, poet that deals with et kulam or the light as uh, actually has attracted everybody and took him from the darkness of the hall of the Bet Midrash of the Yeshiva, the image of the sabre. And let's, let's talk about it. We just uh, passed the International Memorial Day of the Holocaust. For me as a younger, as a young guy that grew up in Israel, to say that my father was an Holocaust survivor, it was a kind of embarrassment because uh, because in Israel the Sabra image was that the people in the Holocaust went like sheep to massacre, and uh, and people were were ashamed to uh, the, to say to tell the stories about the Holocaust because the image and the idea of the Zionism was to raise here a generation of strong fighters, etc., etc. Why do I share with our listeners all this? Because this situation today has increased the tension between these two identities, and all of a sudden, the Israelis that never had to decide which identity they have to prefer, because usually we know that these identities, although they have a struggle between themselves, but we try to balance between them. I'm Jewish and I'm an Israeli. Israel is a democratic and a Jewish state. All of a sudden, the secular tribe has to decide which component do I have to prefer? Will I choose the Jewish identity or will I choose the democratic Israeli identity? Why do they have to decide now, though? What's happened that's making people choose? Exactly. If we follow the last three months, forget the judicial reform. Just to sit and to look at 10 proposals that were brought to the parliament, to the Knesset, from stopping subsidizing um, Shabbat events in different museums, program that was amazing for the Israeli society that accessed museums and other places of historical heritage of the modern Israel that opened these uh, museums and different uh, places to observant and unobservant people for free and access it to them. And all of a sudden the minister says, no, we're going to stop it because it, we don't want to subsidize anything that works on Shabbat. Add to that the, the threat that if a woman will come in an unmodest dress to the area of the Wailing Wall, she will be taken to prison for six months. Add to that the bill of uh, separation in uh, all the wells for um, all the wells and springs and natural parks for um, um, 
people that don't want to be being in co-ed in the mixed areas, etc., etc. All of a sudden, the secular Israelis feel that their way way of life is threatened, and that the Jewish component of the society has taken over, which is legitimate, but now they have to choose. Okay, do I want to be a part of a society that strengthens the Jewish component on the account of the democratic um, component or not? Add to that that these people already from the beginning, their Jewish identity was questioned because of a lot of challenges that the religious establishment has brought in front of them. And I will just raise one issue. And that's before we talk about the law of return and conversion. Let's assume, first of all, we have to know, in Israel today, forget the issue of conversion, just the issue of all immigrants, including American immigrants. Every immigrant that arrives to Israel since 1990 has to prove that he is halakhically Jewish if he wants to get married in Israel. Now, for most immigrants, they have no way to prove that they are Jewish. Especially if they came from the former Soviet Union. Especially if they came from the former Soviet Union where there was no Jewish life there. But even if they come from America and they come from reform and conservative congregations or from unaffiliated families, then they bring a letter. From whom will they bring a letter that approves that he is halakhically Jewish? Nobody will accept this letter. So the Israelis, that their identity was already questioned and threatened before. And now... And that, in add to that, the religious establishment gives a very hard time to everybody that wants to convert. The conversion in Israel is given to the very, very right, right wing that is very strict in the issues of conversion. Wouldn't even accept some orthodox rabbis in America. Oh, does not accept, of course. Forget the reforming conservative conversions. Many, I would say, most of the conversions that are done in North America by modern Orthodox rabbis are not accepted in Israel. So if that's the case, and you want now to add restrictions on the law of return, all of a sudden people say to themselves, what's going on here? Now, the price that we are paying is in two levels. A is the price in the hatred to religious and Haredi people, which is hard to describe. I was here in Israel a few weeks after the murder of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. I remember how... It was how, largely in response to that you founded Sohar. Right. As that's one of the consequences of this murder, that we founded Sohar. But I remember how religious girls or religious boys were ashamed to walk in the streets because they were afraid to be kicked out of the buses, not to, not to be treated in a normal way as they should be treated in the, in the hospitals, in other places. The same scenarios occur today. Just last week, one of the very famous journalists has published how a religious guy comes to a bookstore in Tel Aviv and is kicked out from the store because he said this store is not for religious people. Stories of Haredi religious men or women that are kicked out from national parks because people say to them, we don't want to see you here. You're taking our part, you're taking our parts, you're taking our money, etc., etc. These are events that the relig- that the religious leadership, political leadership, does not understand what is the damage they are co- causing to their own people. Because the hatred towards them in the current situation in the Israeli society is so deep and so high. But 
from my point of view, it's not only a question of hatred to people. It's hatred to Judaism as well. And that's the area that I could say I'm the expert in that. <laughs> and I would share with you some anecdotes just from the last couple of days. I met a group of rabbis last Saturday night. One of the rabbi's wives, she's a doctor in Ashdod, in a Suta hospital. And the doctors, she shared with us, doctors tell her, we decided forget buying passports from other countries, which it is a phenomenon that we never we never face in such big numbers, yeah, large just numbers. Just to make sure everybody understands, it's Israelis who are eligible for passports for other countries going to the trouble of having a non-Israeli passport as some sort of backup. And that's exactly. become a widespread kind practice. Kind of insurance, kind of a guarantee, yeah, just be, in case. It's become a pretty big deal in recent years. Correct. Recent years and recent months, Even more. he doubled himself. But she, told, she tells me, doctors tell her we decided not to make circumcision to our boys, that, to our babies that were born now, because we don't want to have anything with Yiddishkeit. Wow. And that's shocking for us. In Israel, we knew that 95%, 97% of the Israeli society, doesn't matter if you are observant or non-observant, used to make circumcisions to their, to their babies without any questioning this issue. Almost not questioning. Not today. I hear from men and women that try to hide their religious identity when they go to work because they feel embarrassed to represent themselves or to present themselves as a part of the religious Zionist movement or as a part of the Haredi society. So they're experiencing in Israel exactly what they fled Europe not to have to deal with. Exactly, exactly. And... uh, so first of all, we have to understand that the current situation arrived to a peak that if our leadership will not understand the price of, I'm not talking politics, I'm talking from the Jewish point of view. If people will not understand that Jewish achievements could not be accomplished by using political power, which is a kind of opportunity. Now you are controlling, you are governing. Next year, somebody else will be governing. Judaism should be accepted by good intention and by goodwill and not, would not, should not be imposed on people. And the feeling today is that the religious political leadership is not looking for dialogue, but is arrogant, is drunk of power, and tries to take advantage of the political power to implement their views and their approaches without, we say in Hebrew, without taking hostages, without taking wounded, and to be killers. And we don't understand. We are going to pay a very, very big, a very high price for that, because there is a cost for every kind of such a behavior. And I, I, I'm not afraid that the Israelis would, most of them would fly tomorrow to Europe or to North America. A, it's not possible. B, for most of them, they have families and they're not going to do that. But they're going to establish that their segregate own communities and tribe, a kind of a kingdom, cultural kingdom, what we call today in Israel the state of Tel Aviv 
versus the state of Jerusalem. And we are experienced two and a half thousand years ago. We know how the story of the kingdom of Solomon and David ended up. And the, be the beginning of this process was by splitting the kingdom to Judea and the kingdom of Israel. Now, if we recall, if we remember our history, we know that it started with issues of taxes. The king Rehavam, the son of Solomon, comes to Shechem, the capital of Tel Aviv. The, the previous Tel Aviv, in, in, if you translate this to, to modern society, he comes to them and he says, well, you have to continue to pay taxes. Well, we need the taxes for the temple. We need the taxes for our needs. And they say to him, well, you have to reduce a bit of the taxes. We are paying most of the taxes because the kingdom of Israel was much richer, much wealthier than the kingdom of Judea. And the same thing occurs today. as That's why I mentioned in the beginning that the secular tribes, how do they feel that they have to pay the cost of the current government that shifts the money from instead of encouraging science, high education, etc., etc., to more and more religious studies, Torah, Talmud Torah studies. And not, more, not only that, but they could hear in the news that the prime minister tries to convince Haredi people, don't send your kids to schools that teach English and mathematics. I will give you all the budgets you need. Just continue to do what you do in order to, to make sure that the, all the Haredi parties are running together so that we'll be able to pass the threshold. Again, look at this event that took place four months ago from a secular point of view. We need urgently all the forces to strengthen our economy, but the Prime Minister, for political reasons, and wants the Haredi society not to learn mathematics and not to learn English, not to involve them in the work market in Israel in order to strengthen his political situation. For the secular tribe, this is something that could not be uh, received in a proper way. And I'm speaking politically correct. And that's why they feel that, okay, so let's, let's separate. Let's separate ourselves from you. Okay, we will not leave the country, but Tel Aviv will be one country and Jerusalem will be the second country. Now, the, it's not going to happen practically, but it is happening culturally and it's happening socially. And this is not less dangerous than political divide. Because once we lose this solidarity between the tribes, it's the beginning of a collapse of our society. Right, and you mentioned the, uh, the David and Solomon model. It's, it's worth thinking about for the fact, the, the, just the moment that David ruled in, in Jerusalem for 33 years, and then he ruled in, uh, and then Solomon ruled for 40. So the combined, the combined empire was basically 73, 74 years, uh, which is exactly where we are right now. And people sometimes make similar calculations around the time of the Maccabim, the Hashmonaim. 74 was not a good time then. So we're really at a, at a kind of a historical repeat. Now, I do want to get to, in a minute, what do we do? In other words, how do we fix this? But in order to sort of, sort of nudge us in that direction, I want to ask um, a question from the point of view of somebody who might say, from the point of view, let's say, of the national religious group. Well, in America, it was called modern orthodox, even though it's not really exactly the same thing. We can just sort of use that term for right now. 
And they would say, look, I understand um, how off-putting all of this is to the secular Ashkenazi world in Tel Aviv, and it's certainly unacceptable that a person wearing a kippah would walk into a bookstore and be told that you're not allowed to shop in this or that's outrageous. But they might say, but isn't there some responsibility among the leadership of the secular Ashkenazi world that for the last 75 years has not really figured out a way to embrace Jewish civilization and culture, anything positive Jewishly, even as it advocated for a Western Jewish state. I mean, they would say that that 30% or 40% that you're talking about that founded the country really has no Jewish content. Or you mentioned Bialik before, right? And you can't read Hamatmid, which was the poem that we mentioned or Be'ir Ha'arega, the city of slaughter, or Al Hashkita about the slaughter. If Bialik didn't have children, unfortunately, but if Bialik had had grandchildren and they were living in Tel Aviv today, the education they would have gotten in Tel Aviv would not have enabled them to understand their grandfather's poetry. They would say, yeah, he was famous, but I don't really get all of this. How do we also get that part? How, we're saying we have to get the religious community to be more tolerant, more embracing, stop grabbing power. But how do we get the the secular part of Israel to re... I, I know that Sohar has been involved in this tremendously, but how do we get it to re-embrace the glory and the beauty of Jewish tradition without anybody telling them what to eat or what to wear or, or how to live? First of all, I think you're 100% right. And uh, Sohar says it's one of his missions today to uh, start having connections with different groups. I personally started a few weeks ago a project in Sohar. We call it Chiburim, Connections and Bridges, uh, in order to expose the secular society, the beauty, the glory of what the Torah has to offer. I think that uh, I cannot release them from responsibility for the tremendous failure in education to what they believe, forget to what I believe, to what they believe. The fact that you mentioned that today nobody in the secular education could read Bialik. Bialik is for uh, universities. Nobody could read Yudha Michai, which is a secular poet from the uh, mid-60s, 70s, and even him, that he was secular, not like Bialik that grew up Tons in Yeshiva. Tons of biblical references of and course, Hazal references. Of course, he's quoting, you cannot understand what he's talking about, because if he talks about Rachel, about Yitzchak, Akedat Yitzchak, or other uh, Jewish events, secular boys and girls have no clue. It's true, and David Grossman, by the way, if you read David Grossman's novels, they're interlaced with, with of all course. sorts of biblical... Of course, of course. And that's why... I'm, I'm not releasing them from responsibility. As a matter of fact, I met a group of one of the 70 people that signed the petition to the Prime Minister regarding the judicial uh, reform. I said to them, look, you are very much against Avi Maoz and his nomination to take care of the contents of education. I agree with you. He's not the man to decide what should be the content. And I could understand very well why we don't, you don't want him to impose you about the content of the Ministry of Education. But it's time to raise the question, how come none of your kids have no clue what is Sidur, what is Kriyat Shema, what is Birkat Amazon, what is the blessing of, on, on the food after you had bread? How come in every daily school in Europe and in South Africa and in New York, 
even if in, in reform and conservative or wherever I go, I will see the youngsters that know they don't have to be observant, but they have the knowledge. And here in Israel, none, almost 0% of the kids, I'm talking again about the secular Ashkenazi, not talking about the traditional that see things at home, not because of education, because of the families they grew in. But it's it's unbelievable. And you have to to understand that if you will not fill your wagon with a Jewish content, that's for you. You decide what it should be. You know, there's a very famous expression of Rabbi Sachs, blessed his memory, he used to say, we shifted from being the chosen people to be the choosing people. But when you choose, you have to know what are the options. You don't, you, you don't give you, you don't access your children to the different options so they, they will know which, which part of their inheritance they want to take with them. You're 100% right. But, you know, we, when we pray um, three times a day and we, there is a Jewish custom to knock on our chest when we say, ask Hashem, ask God, please forgive us for our sins. Usually there is a habit to knock on somebody else's chest and not <laughs> on ours. So it's true. They have a lot of responsibility. I could analyze in a deeper way, in a broader way, in another time. But today our mission you're 100% right, is not only to change the approach of the religious or modern Zionist, modern orthodoxy, but to change the approach of the secular society to tell them that if they will not do it eventually, they will not be here. They will not survive in the in the Jewish uh, continuity. You're 100% right. Well, it's not we, only that. The state won't survive. Of because course. You pointed out before that even with all the changes, they're the pilots, they're the ones in the Mossad, they're the ones that are doing the really high-level security work. But in order to do that, you have to believe in the country. To believe in the country, you have to be able to say something about why the Jewish people matters. And you can't say anything about why the Jewish people matters if you don't know anything about Judaism. So it's a national security threat. Absolutely. And therefore, we in Tzorn, we intend one of our projects, a new project, as a result of this current government, not to be political, not to say this side is right or the other side is right. That's not our mission. Our mission is to deepen the Jewish identity in a situation, in, a, in an environment that actually doesn't want to hear about it. Because the, the voices that all the protest is making in this last couple of weeks is, leave us alone. We don't want to have anything with you until you fix the system, until you compromise with us. We don't want to hear anything from Judaism. We don't want to hear anything for our heritage. We want this to be fixed. We understand, and that's why we have dialogues with different leaders in the secular society, that if they want to succeed as one of the tribes, and we need them, it's our, it's our responsibility and it's our need for us as a Jewish state that all the tribes... We will, will remain together. If we want this to happen, we need to connect them to Jewish values in a way that will inspire them, that will engage them, that will resonate to them. Now, that's a long-term project, or at least a medium-term project. We're in the middle of a crisis moment now, though. So I want to, uh, as we begin to wrap up our conversation, to ask you two related questions. For those of us who are Israeli, um, what can we do? Those of us were not politicians and not, you know, not in charge of anything. Uh, what can we do to try to heal this rift and to try to bring this moment of crisis to a close? And to our listeners, many of whom are abroad, who care deeply about Israel, who know that they're not citizens and they're not all philanthropists, 
Um, they're asking themselves, is there anything that, that I can do? But let's talk about Israelis first. What can people like you, who do have the ears of people, lead, the leadership of the country, and people like me, who don't have the ears of the leadership of the country, what can we do to try to back away from the, the cliff, which is very dangerous, and then what can people outside do? On a very individual level, I think each one of us should today encourage people that are around him to meet each other, to talk to each other, to change the language that is now in the social media and in the demonstrations from all sides. You know, there is a very famous expression that the Second Temple was destroyed because of um, baseless hatred. hatred. Baseless Baseless hatred. hatred. But actually, it's not baseless. I mean, there was big, big reason to fight different positions, political positions. And today, you are supportive of the Jericho reform. You are against it. So why do we call it baseless hatred? The issue is the following. The rabbis called it baseless hatred. There is, it's not baseless dispute. It's not a baseless um, debate. It's, of course, it had a lot of basis because there were a lot of reasons to, to, to dispute one another. But it was baseless to hate. Mm-hmm. The hatred is baseless. We should take as our mission to increase love. And how do we increase love? We change the way we talk to our neighbors. We, t- we change the way we talk to our, to our friends <coughs> in work, to our colleagues. A, we, want to, we need to show love concern and solidarity to each other that's on the very very fundamental level on the second level each one of us in the areas where he is influential should ask to more and more meetings between rabbis authors artists people performances that could be a bridge that will share values that will inspire values to people that today are terrified and I'm using the word terrified because today people do not distinguish between Rav Stav and I don't want to mention another name. For them, all the people with beard and kippot are terrifying. Each one of, the, of us is intending to impose us and to change our, our lifestyle. No, we have to understand that people are not the same and not alike and people have share different approaches among the religious group, among the secular groups. We need to expose each, each one of us to others. For instance, next week, I'm going to meet with a group of high technology company, 400 people. And he asked me yesterday even to expose it by Zoom to other few thousands workers in our, a few other high technology companies to listen to a, a discussion with me in Hebrew about Judaism, um, from goodwill and not Judaism by choice and not Judaism that is imposed on us. For instance, take this as a challenge. What values do we want to adopt from Judaism? And let's discuss it. I think um, we have so many sources that could inspire everybody. I'll share with you an anecdote and I think we have to finish to conclude with this. I met um, former Prime Minister uh, Lapid a few days before the elections. And he said to me, you know, Rabbi Stav, my rabbi is Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. When I read his books, I feel I'm inspired. I feel I'm connected. I'm engaged. I'm sure that there isn't one 
secular guy in Israel, that if you will read the literature of Rabbi Sachs, he will not say to himself, well, this kind of Judaism, I really want to expose myself to. I need to, to deepen myself. So let me tell you something. Rabbi Sachs is not alone. He's just the very pure and professional voice that represents a voice of hundreds of thousands of rabbis and others that feel that his way is their way and their way is his way. And I think we have a lot to offer to the Israeli society that could stay together, that could love each other and could continue despite the differences and the debate that will continue. And I'm not, I don't have any uh, magic solution for all the debates. I know that there is nothing better to recover than love and concern and exposure to each other. That's a vision of Judaism that it's hard not to embrace. Uh, and that's why uh, you are yourself, you mentioned Rabbi Sachs, but I think it's important to note also that you are yourself uh, revered by so many thousands of people across Israel because of the, the notion of a Judaism of love and embracing and intellectual sophistication and halachic seriousness and all of those things that you bring together. Um, you are a, a source of great hope for those of us who share your discern, your, your, I wouldn't say despair, but your concern at this particular time. So for exposing our listeners to a new way of thinking about what's going on in Israel and for having had them have an opportunity to meet one of Israel's most important and formidable religious personalities, I'm very, very, very grateful for and honored by your time today. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.